1: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Megan, and Megan was in a relationship with a smear campaigning abuser. It's a story of isolation, physical abuse, put-downs, using children as weapons, and post-separation, abuse. Abuse. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Megan. How are you?
0: I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, thank you for being here. And if you want to be a guest like Megan is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says guest form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our guest form page, and there you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at narcissistapocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And today, you are going to hear Megan's story and a content warning for this episode as we do discuss physical abuse in this episode. So that is a content warning for everyone. And today you're going to hear Megan's story. And this story is on the shorter end of the stories that we do tell, but it's very compact and there's a lot of information in here. I know Megan's story is going to help a lot of people recognizing abuse that is going on, but also when it comes to the post-separation abuse, especially if you have a child, there will be a lot of little nitty-gritty nuance things in there to really validate your experience. So I really can't thank Megan enough for being here. So now I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Megan, the floor is now yours.
0: Um, I wanted to talk about my experience of being in a relationship with my ex-husband. It's kind of interesting because you don't really see somebody for what they are until, you know, a while after. And then by then, it's kind of in too deep. um, You've gone too far. uh, You have a wedding planned. And then eventually you have a child uh, with them. and I think um probably out of all of the regrets that I have, um it was probably having a child because that ties you together to such a degree that you don't um you don't ever really, truly get rid of them. Um,
1: so before we get to the person that your story is about. What was your upbringing like?
0: Um, I grew up um, in a mixed race family um, with very traditional gender roles, um, probably because of my ethnic background um, and I have Indian roots. Um, And my mom was a homemaker and my dad uh, was the main kind of breadwinner. And so I grew up um, surrounded by a lot of love from my parents, uh, but with the idea that, you know, there are gender roles uh, in society and those gender roles being that, um, you know, the man makes the money, he's the provider, the head of the family, and the woman plays like a supportive role uh, in the family. And I think that, Uh, affected a lot of uh, my experiences with my ex-husband because I viewed our relationship through that same prism even though I probably shouldn't have done at the time and I think in hindsight the reason I tolerated uh, what I tolerated was because you know I was um, kind of encouraged to compromise and that it is you know the woman's role in the relationship to compromise and hold the whole thing together, basically. Um, Although, so I had doubtlessly a very happy childhood, but it was, uh, it changed, it it created a lot of the perceptions now that um, I feel are wrong.
1: And what were you like as a child and as a teenager?
0: Um, I was always very keen to please. Actually, um, I was a teacher's pet. Uh, I skipped a class in school. I did exams early. I was a straight A student, and I think I have have this streak in me that, like, says, you know, if you try hard enough, it will work. So if you try hard enough, it will work out. If you just want it enough, it will happen. And again, looking back, those are all the things that kept me in my marriage because coming, uh, growing up in a fairly conservative background and with the belief that if you want, you will succeed. I had this fixation that if I just try hard enough and work hard enough, that he will change or, or it will be okay. Or if I just compromise more, you know, everything is going to be all right. It was that complete inability to, accept failure, that in hindsight is what kind of got us to where we are today, in a way.
1: And as far as what you wanted from the world after school and things, did you have specific dreams that you wanted? Like, where did you see yourself, your future? And did you have any other belief systems Um Or value systems that you live by at that time?
0: Um, So what I knew for sure is that I don't want to be a housewife, a homemaker. I didn't want that because I couldn't stand the idea of not being financially independent. Um, I couldn't stand the idea of asking anyone for money or anyone dictating how I spend my money. And so I was always career-oriented. My mom always wanted us to be financially independent in part because of her maybe own experiences um, in her marriage. But um, I was not brought up to be subservient. Um, So I wanted to be a lawyer. I am a lawyer. I became a lawyer. And so I was extremely driven because there was always that pressure of how much finance had been put into my education. Um, there was always a pressure to succeed and exceed. And so the belief system that I grew up with was that you should be able to have it all. So it's quite messed up, actually, because on the one hand, I was seeing these traditional gender roles and you know, being told that it is women who should compromise, but at the same time being encouraged to be making money and having a career and et cetera.
1: And did you have relationships previous to this, and what were they like, and um, did that influence uh, the relationship that you eventually got into that we're going to be talking about today?
0: Um, The relationships that I had before, so because I spent so much of my teenage years kind of poring over books and studying, I didn't really have... um, uh, proper kind of boyfriend girlfriend relationships until I was about sixteen or seventeen. And even then they were quite at a like a very innocent level. Um, so I went to university kind of not really having had a sense of a proper relationship. Um, yeah, I'd had a couple of boyfriends in high school, but things were never really serious with them. And uh, before I met my ex-husband, I dated another guy from university for three years. I can't say there was anything wrong with him. Uh, We broke up because he um, went to study abroad and it was just not feasible at that age. You know, no one wants to be tied down in like a long distance relationship at the age of 18. Um, And he was kind of wanting to go out and party. And so that was all fine. I I don't think that um, any of them kind of put me through any trauma or you know that that then <laughs> that then led to me um, falling in love with my ex-husband.
1: So eventually, you do meet the the person that this story is about. So walk us through the initial meeting, how it happened, and take us from there.
0: So kind of against that back backdrop of my uh, upbringing and the fact that um, you know in my culture people often get married pretty early. Um. My, my mom had told me that, well, you know, by the age of 25, you should aim to be married because that is a good time to get married. And I was like, okay. So I met my ex-husband um, at a house party um, and he was seven years older than me. So I was 20 and he was 27 and I was still studying and he already was an adult. You know, he had a job and um all of that was obviously very attractive he was very good looking and he was very charming um he uh was smiley he had a lot of charisma and he um was just a guy that everybody liked so he was just very very likable and so um we got together and then at the time um he was still kind of hung up over his ex and so Things were a bit difficult. It wasn't that serious. I wanted a commitment from him, but he was um, still texting her or whatever. And then in, um, eventually, you know, the commitment uh, did happen. Um, and in those, I can't say that he love Bond Me in those uh, initial stages, which is kind of the classic thing that happens. Um, but things were all right. Although what I did notice, and I think what should have been a warning sign back then, is that he really knew how to hold a grudge. And he also didn't get along with any of his family members. So he always argued with his mom, always argued with his dad, always argued with all of his sisters. So he had like two sisters. And he was in this constant stream of like negativity um, towards them. And everybody had done him wrong. You know, his parents hadn't given him enough career guidance, which is where, why he was where he was. And his dad was a drinker and his parents were divorced and his dad didn't um, give him enough money when he moved abroad to study, uh, although his dad did fund his whole education. And so it was always kind of like somebody else is to blame for all my grievances. And I have done nothing wrong. Like life has just done me hard, you know.
1: Did you have empathy for what he was saying at the time?
0: Yes, because he could tell a good sob story. Um, and uh, some of the things he told me, you know, that his mom would like make him stand on frozen peas or on salt, like with his knees, you know, to punish him or You know, those were all horrible things or that he would tell him that he was good for nothing, never going to succeed in school and that he was terrible at it and that he was a failure. And um, his mom always made uh, him go to his dad when his parents separated and say, um, you know, you need to give us some money. But then she would belittle him for begging from his dad. And, And now he belittles me for begging when I tell him to pay child maintenance. He's like, here you are begging again. You know, it's just like a repetition of this cycle of abuse, which we'll come on to.
1: So you know, trauma is breeding trauma here, which is breeding. You know, he's got unresolved trauma from his childhood which is going to eventually wreak havoc on your life. So after these initial meeting that you had with him and this whole, you know, getting a commitment part of the relationship from him, how long is that period? And I guess what happens after, I guess, your commitment occurs?
0: So I think it took about six months to get um, a commitment from him. And we dated, um, then we, uh, moved in together, uh, eventually. So we dated for, um, four years, uh, three years, sorry. And then we moved in together. Um, then we got engaged a year later and then we got married a few months later.
1: So those three years before you moved in together was life normal?
0: It was normal. And sometimes it wasn't. So I found that I would always be the one apologizing for everything. So he was not one for apologies. And I found that I was always kind of making that first step after an argument to say, you know, okay, well, let's make up or whatever, forget about it. Um, And he wasn't really one to take a step back and to apologize. And I think that was in hindsight, a red flag as well and also a lot of the times when we had arguments he would kind of turn them around on me and be like well I acted that way because you did this or you provoked me um and uh there was one time I mean he started smoking quite a bit of pot eventually um and you know everybody smokes pot at university probably (laughs) um and everybody is kind of a bit naughty with it, but he took it to the next level. And I think he had like a proper addiction. Um, And so eventually kind of, it became obvious that he was smoking more and more. And um, he he wasn't really physically violent with me for a while, but the first time that he was, so I threatened to flush it down the toilet and he grabbed my neck, pushed me against a wall and said like, I will punch you if you throw away my pot. Um, And I, and even then when, you know, later in the aftermath, I was like, you know, what you did was just not okay. He was like, well, you shouldn't have provoked me. Like I'm an adult. I can deal with my own pot issues um, and it's not your business. And then the cultural aspect came in because I'd introduced him to my parents before this had happened. We were, um engaged and we were about to get married and then like everybody was invited and then just the the, like cultural shame of calling the whole thing off was too much it was just it just wasn't an option it wasn't an option we had 300 people at our wedding you know all my relatives knew all my conservative relatives and I was like okay maybe this was a one-off and it's not going to happen again you know and we've talked about it now um and even though I'm not sure he thinks what he did was wrong, he actually denied that the whole thing ever happened. Um, I was thinking that maybe maybe it's going to be all right.
1: And what did your friends think of him before you got married? Were they fans of him? Because uh, you said he was charismatic.
0: So they were fans of the charisma, um, but they weren't fans of the fact that they thought he wasn't very intelligent. And they thought that um, I was settling. But from my perspective, he um, was unlike my dad because he was interested in also doing homemaking things. Like he liked cooking and it seemed like he didn't want the gender role separation. And especially in a man from the same background as me, which is what he was. Um, I thought that this was an achievement on my part to find a man from my culture who gets me, but who is equally a feminist and not a misogynist, or so I thought. So my friends liked him, but they also thought he wasn't very intelligent.
1: So what was, I guess, the next escalation point in your relationship?
0: So before we got married, I had told him that, look, I have to do well in my career. I want to be a lawyer, I want to finish my training, I want to get promoted, I want to be kept on. And I said to him, I don't really have the time to do the nine to five and, you know, cook meals every day. Um, That's not going to be a possibility because I really want to focus on my career because it's just starting out. And I can't tell my seniors that, you know, I'm going home uh, because I need to go make dinner. That's just not how it works very early on in the legal industry. You cancel plans, you do what it takes. And I thought that that was clear. And eventually, um, as our kind of life together started to progress, he used to say, you know, why am I always cooking? You have to be home at five today to cook. And I would say, um, you... uh, you know, I we've discussed this. I, I just don't have time. If you want, like, I'll pay my fair share and I'll pay for takeaways, but I can't make you fresh meals every day with three types of vegetables or whatever it is that you want. Um, because not only did I have to prepare meals every day, but they had to contain certain ingredients. So it couldn't be just meat, but it had to have veg in it. And he couldn't eat the same thing two days in a row. It had to be switched up. Um, and... He eventually things really broke down when he started um arguing with me. He started recording our fights um and he started sending around the videos to our friends, to our family, to his relatives, to my parents. Um, he started gathering all this evidence on me so he would kind of rile me up and rile me up, and then he would be like, uh look you know and and by the time I was seeing red I was like a bull he would be like oh you're crazy look at her look how she's insulting me look how you know she disrespects me and he kept saying that you have no respect for me and you know you're lucky I cook and it would be um rare for you to find a man like I'd like to see you find one who will help you do the dishes or who will do any cleaning in fact he didn't ever do any cleaning but we'll come on. to that. Um, So he was always saying how I should be grateful. And then later on when our daughter was born, he was like, uh, you should be grateful that I wash her bottles. I'd like to see you try to find somebody who washes baby bottles in our community, for example. Um, One of the escalations was when um, we had an argument about something and he didn't want me to sleep in the marital bed. And so he um, literally kicked me. He kicked me off the bed. So as I was getting on it, he was lying on it. He just used his feet to just kick me off it. Um and he um wiped the toilet seat with my clothes. He kind of threatened to throw away my stuff down the toilet and flush it down. And those were just the kinds of escalations that took place.
1: So what are the reactions from your friends and family after everything is sent to them? And how does it feel to have everyone involved in your relationship? And then how are you dealing with everything?
0: So my most embarrassing factor was the fact that he was sending this to my parents because because they had no idea that things were not going well in our marriage. And it was the first that they heard of it when he phoned them up and he said, this is what she's done and she doesn't cook and she doesn't clean and she's a brat and she works and um, and also look at her like disrespecting me, you know? Um, so first I had to try and smooth things over with them. Um, as it comes, uh, so when, when it comes to my friends, uh, So our friends eventually got involved in trying to um, salvage our relationship because he told them so much. And I got an email from a friend with a long list of things, our mutual friend, of what was wrong with me. So things that I had done that were selfish. So um, one of those things for which I got a lot of stick was the fact that when we went to a wedding together of his friend, I hadn't helped organize that wedding. And um, uh, he had embarrassed me publicly. He had uh, thrown my makeup artist out of the hotel, um, told her to leave, had a fight in front of her with me because I um, uh, I hadn't helped organize his friend's wedding. So that was a selfish thing I did apparently, according to the email. Um, that somehow justified his abuse. Um, Another thing I was told um, from, again, a person of the same cultural background is that I should be grateful because most men try to dominate their wives, but he's a stand-up guy. Use the word stand-up guy. Um, And he doesn't try to dominate me. So, I mean, what can my problem possibly be? I just need to suck it up. And that quite frankly, you know, me uh, poking fun in the WhatsApp chat group at him occasionally was completely inappropriate. Although this same person was sending us videos of his own wife kind of snoring, which I'm not sure she wanted everyone to see. But anyway, so it was that kind of it was that kind of misogyny just kind of all around me, which made me feel like I was going nuts and that maybe something was wrong with me. Because I was being told, you know, that um i need to contribute to the household which i was happy to do i was happy to pay for cleaners i was happy to pay for someone to you know come come and help us cook but i just couldn't do it myself and i had made that clear because i was you know trying to build a life for myself remembering that i was 7 years younger than him um and i in in the end i started to feel like maybe something is wrong with me because all our friends barring two had turned against me and now we're divorced none of them speak to me because I have not voiced my sob story so to speak that he has managed to get into everyone's head I had my personal friends who were not his friends who were not mutual friends called up by him and then um uh calling me being like I can't believe that you've done all these things. Uh, You know, he said X, Y, and Z. And then when I had set them straight about what was going on, they would tell me he is so convincing. He's so persuasive that they were starting to think that I was a bit of an asshole, um, quite frankly. And there was only one girl who heard my story. And how this happened was that one time he after our daughter was born, he um, raised his fist at me and he, I was holding her and he was threatening to punch me because he was mad at something. Um, And I called the police because I was scared because she was like two months old at the time. And as soon as I called the police, he went out and he told everybody that I had lied to them, that I had overreacted, embarrassed him, humiliated him, including this one girl. And she was the only one actually had the guts to meet up with me and hear my side of things. And after she had heard it, she um, didn't really speak to him again after that properly because she gave me a chance to explain, whereas all the rest of them, um, I didn't get any chances to explain my position. And he was so convincing. He convinced my grandma. He convinced my aunt. He called up everybody he knew. Everybody. Everybody
1: so you know this was the aftermath of of everything that occurred with this smearing it happened during it but it also in the in the aftermath as well but in between eventually after you did get married you did have children and when you had children uh with this person things did like Take a turn and, and get worse. So, I guess, take us through how the children uh, affected everything and the weaponization, I guess, uh, of children when it comes to abusive relationships.
0: Yeah. So, we had our daughter uh, in 2018. And I have to say that in the time between um, when we had our daughter and I was pregnant, things were more or less stable-ish. That was probably because I was taking it easier at work. I was coming home on time. I had been more keen than usual to please because now we had a child on the way. And so things got better because I was keen to please. And I was making my kind of three vegetable meal plus a salad and I think he seemed uh, content with that. So then we had our daughter. And obviously, you know, as people who have had children, particularly women, will know it is a tough time. It's a tough time because you are kind of their primary carer. They depend on you for nourishment. Your own body has gone through a bunch of changes. You're not really yourself. There's hormones. And again, because I am not a believer in failure, I was very keen to breastfeed my child and it wasn't working out. And while I was struggling with all of that, um, he then called me a drama queen because I was so self-centered in all of this. So I was focusing on my own thing and not realizing that, you know, I'm giving everyone around me a tough time because of my breastfeeding drama, like calling consultants and lactation consultants and all of that. So he um, yelled at me in front of my parents. And again, I was always keen to keep the disagreements in the house. So not to spread it around to other people, but he had no qualms fighting with me in public. And he fought with me in front of my parents, in front of our friends. Even when I said it's a red line for me, because I don't like that kind of kind of public outburst, humiliation, whatever you want to call it. So we had our daughter, I was struggling, was yelling at me. And um, I was very keen to uh, get some help with my daughter after she was born. And because I needed that help and I was asking him for it, you know, I wanted my parents to help he um, said to me that you're not right in the head because you're depressed. And I said, I'm not depressed. I am fine, but the issue is that you are not helping. You have said to my face, it's a mother's job to look after the child. And now you're accusing me of being depressed because I want some level of help. So um, things really escalated then because I started to decide that I don't want to raise my child in this kind of household we were arguing every day the house was a mess he threatened to call the police on the cleaner if she came um because he said that it's my job all of this and that I'm spoiled for like wanting all this help around me um and so then I decided uh that I would get a divorce but I had been deciding that for a long time. So it took me actually about one and a half years to properly go through with it. I, you know, kept filing, then he was complaining to friends, calling my parents, trying to convince them to speak to me, to put me back in my place, to you know, make up, etc. Um, and in that time he started to use our daughter as a tool. So for example, he said things to me like, if you don't apologize to my friend for not helping with X and Y, then you can't go traveling with our child. I'll take the passport away. I'll make sure she doesn't leave the country. Um, he started slowly to um, say things like, oh, well, you know, if you want me to agree to this kindergarten, what are you going to do for me? And it was just getting unbearable. Um and there were constant arguments and it resulted in her startling. So because she was very small, if she heard yelling, she was startled. And then I would say, don't yell in front of her. Don't swear in front of her. And he would just, it would just swell him up even more. So um, we had a three bedroom house. Uh, I moved out and he stayed with our daughter. I moved into a hotel uh, for a year and he stayed in our three bedroom house on his own he uh another thing he started doing was trying to make me feel more and more insecure, so he would say things like, "Look at all our friends, they cope so well with all their children, and you're just incompetent. you know you constantly need this this support network around you, but look at x and y she's doing so well um he'd say things like, You will never find uh another man um I have um like a like a certain skin condition he would make fun of that as well and all the things that I had told him as a you know in confidence about my childhood you know uh, for instance like uh, elements of abuse that occurred in my childhood uh, not from my parents I will say um, he then used against me so all of those deepest darkest secrets to try and kind of really really shake me um And so I moved out um, and we started court proceedings uh, for the children. And again, he is so convincing. Like even in the courtroom, he would say things like, I want to see my child because I want to help her with homework um, and I want to be involved in school life. So he got his extra day. But where we are currently is that he doesn't do any homework with her because he wants to make me mad because he wants to put it on me but it's narcissistic because it's selfish and what he doesn't realize is that when we have to do all that homework in one go because she's been with him he's not done it it's due tomorrow now and it's up to me to do it in one go she gets tired she wakes up late for school she um is uh late to school and all of these kinds of things is just i think a narcissist will always put themselves first there's other elements of things that he does such as steal school uniforms so I have to buy more because he couldn't financially control me and you know thank the lord for that because if a narcissist has financial control over you and you are not financially independent I feel that they will do everything they can to run you into the ground so he will withhold child maintenance he will make me buy new school uniforms by mine and not returning them He will not pick her up from school so that I have to leave meetings and just run to school um, and try to punish me in every every possible way and it's still going on and I I just don't think that there is an end to this quite frankly when you have a child with a narcissist there is no end and it's been uh, two and a half years since we divorced and it's still going
1: So where are you in the proceedings when it comes to, I guess, getting an official custody agreement, or are you constantly being put back into court after that agreement has been done?
0: We have the agreement. So he has her once in the middle of the week and then every other weekend. But his claim to that once in the middle of the school week was so that he could do homework and participate in school life and pick her up from school. But those things are not happening, and so once the you know the ink is dry on those papers, it just shows that all of this was not because of consideration for our child, it was about kind of personal win because when you can't win in another way, you try to win with something else
1: in non related stuff with children, are there other forms of post-separation abuse that are happening?
0: Um, there aren't because he got arrested for sending abusive messages. So I think he spent about 48 hours in jail. And I think that taught him, but before, yes, like personal attacks. Yeah.
1: So how does one get arrested for messages? What did those say?
0: Um, those uh, called me a patchy cunt um and uh, uh i have a skin condition called vitiligo which is what michael jackson had which is where you get white patches on your skin and there is something called the malicious communications act um which if you send someone grossly offensive or inappropriate messages can result in you getting arrested but i'm not talking about canadian or u.s law right now
1: so I guess right now you're still in this dealing with this post-separation stuff that's going on with your child and how he's able to manipulate situations or you know get his satisfaction of trying to win you know quote-unquote win because that's what he has in his mind but where are you when it comes to healing uh, how you are, you know, raising your child in dealing with uh, your ex and how they feel about this person, even at a very young age. And I guess, obviously, you have a lot of ties to your friends that are completely gone now. But when it comes to your parents, uh, was that able to be um reconciled like the the smearing that went on with them and them being on your side again or was that uh is still an issue
0: uh it is still an issue so none of our mutual friends speak to me still um and i don't think that they ever ever will to be honest um they have unfollowed me on social media um as When it comes to our daughter, uh, she loves him, but I feel I don't know if that will always be the case as she gets older and starts to see these patterns of having to, you know, um, go in inappropriate school uniform because, you know, all of hers are with dad and he's not giving them back. Or, you know, the fact that he doesn't want to pay for any after school activities, doesn't want to pay child maintenance um, unless forced to uh by by you know child services and I'm, i don't know if eventually she will realize but for me i'm just trying to keep it above board for now so not insult him to her and when it comes to him i sometimes do send him the odd message trying to get to him just trying to say no you not doing homework with her this weekend is nothing off my uh is no skin off my nose, you know it is hurting her because she is tired and she's late to school and she can't, you know, stay focused for so long, do it all in one go. So you, you need to need to do something. And this uniform thing, you know, it's hot in the summer. I don't want her to wear trainers every day. I'm sure you don't either. Please give me back my whatever summer shoes or summer dress. Um, You know, it, it, it but it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I think I think he is so angry, and I don't think that is ever going to change, ever.
1: And when it comes to losing your marriage in the grief of that, and then maybe the relief of the that marriage being over, you still have this loss of your friend group, and I guess a big part of your life. Is, so that's, you know, what you assumed was your support group. So how do you kind of wrap your head around that? And I guess when it comes to healing, I guess, where are you in that process and the grieving aspect of everything?
0: I think I'm more relieved than grieving. I have been promoted twice in my profession since all these troubles started. I think I just focused myself on work and getting ahead and doing the best that I can for our daughter with only one income um, because he's not about to pay anything. Um, And so I think that, I think in reality, she kept me strong. I haven't had therapy as such for this, but I am looking into that. Having said that though, I think the uh, fear of failure for my daughter is the biggest therapy to just pull my socks up um, and get on with it.
1: And if you had any words of wisdom for everyone listening, what would they be?
0: Before you bring a child into this mix, into what is already a messed up, abusive relationship, think a million times over because you will never get rid of them. Unless they magically decide that they don't want nothing to do with their child. And for your child's sake, I hope that is the case. I hope they just decide they want nothing to do with them. Unless that's the case, you will be stuck. And I don't know if all narcissists are so vengeful, but my ex-husband doesn't let go of grudges. It's not something that they do. I don't know if narcissists always do, but they're just always out for revenge. So just remember.
1: Well, thank you, Megan, for being a guest on our show and sharing your story and your experience. I know it's going to help a lot of people. So a big thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, thank you once again, Megan, for being here. And if you want to be a guest like Megan was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button and please do send it in the format that we ask for. And if you are someone that needs support, we at narcissistapocalypse.com have a support group. So at narcissistapocalypse.com, top of the page, you'll see a support group button. And when you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. And inside, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday nights, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you. And you are there as well to give validation to survivors just like you too. It's a wonderful group of people on there. You can share your experiences and make friends as well. It's just a great group of people in our support group. So if you need support, join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you are dealing with. They have every phone number, email address, and every web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you're in. DomesticShelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource and a wonderful organization. So if you need extra support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. And we here at Narcissist Apocalypse have a new friend to the show, and that is an organization called Shelter Movers, which you can reach at sheltermovers.com. And Shelter Movers helps survivors of domestic violence transition to a better and safer life. And they are currently just a Canadian company, but they're looking to be spreading into the United States. It's a volunteer organization and it's a donor-supported charitable organization as well. And what they do is they help coordinate moves for people who are getting out of domestic violence. It's an interesting part of the domestic violence escape process and getting you to safety getting all of your things out of your home they set up storage for you for all of your belongings and they can even do this for your pets and your livestock as well and it's just a wonderful organization so if you need help from them or you just want to donate them please go to sheltermovers.com it's a wonderful organization so check them out if you want to know more and that is it for our show today so for myself and Megan we hope You have a good night.